and welcome to the third episode of this series on publishing addiction science, made as a collaboration between Ice Age and the SSA. This series will guide you through the often very confusing world of academic publishing, uh, trying to make it just marginally less confusing. We originally aimed to make it significantly less confusing, but the stats reviewers vetoed the wording. My name's Rob Calder, I'm the Head of Communications for the SSA, that's the Society for the Study of Addiction. And my name's Casey Calver, and I'm the Executive Officer of Ice Age, the International Society of Addiction Journal Editors. I'm also Managing Editor of the journal Addiction Science and Clinical Practice, and Editorial Director at the Graken Center for Addiction and the Clinical Addiction Research and Education Unit, both at Boston Medical Center. For each episode of this series, we chose one aspect of addiction science publishing and found someone with both the expertise and the willingness to talk into a microphone. It turns out that most of us who work in publishing are eager to talk about the field, much to our delight, and we hope yours. This series is loosely based on a textbook published by Ice Age called Publishing Addiction Science, which can be downloaded for free from the Ice Age website. Episodes 1 and 2 focus on authorship and choosing a journal. In this third interview, Rob spoke with Tom Broomfield from Wiley Publishing. Rob, tell us what you discussed. So this was possibly one of the most interesting conversations I've ever had in any setting. If I'd not been conscious of the fact that it was a podcast, this would have gone on for hours and possibly days. As it is, it's a it's a 27 minute interview, which we tried to cut down, but found that it was actually physically impossible to remove any of it. And, and I can guarantee you, you won't regret uh, listening through to the end. And if you do, you can get your money back on this free podcast. Tom's description of the impact factor is a great example of one of those very specific and seemingly simple issues that just quickly before your eyes unravels into something unfathomably complicated. Um, I particularly also really, uh, I loved Tom's obvious passion for his work in this area. And that kind of thing's uh, always a joy to see. Right. Tom has a way of taking a topic, impact factor, that most of us would generously describe as dry and making it fascinating. That is a rare talent indeed, and I'm so glad we were able to interview him for this series. I hope you enjoy this conversation, which was recorded on the 7th of February, 2023. My name's Tom Broomfield. I'm a senior market analyst working in our market and publishing analytics team or MPA Um, and we as a team handle pretty much all of the journal data uh, that that flows through Wiley and I specifically specialize in bibliometrics um, and submissions as an aside. For people who don't know what is the impact factor? Yeah um, so the journal impact factor uh, which you might also see as the the GIF or just the IF is a journal level citation metric, uh, which is produced by a company called Clarivate as part of their annual journal citation reports or JCR release. Um, so it uses t- data taken from the web of science, uh, which used to be called the web of knowledge. Um, some people might know it as. Um, and I think a, a kind of starter is that all of those elements of that are quite important and some of them are often overlooked. So the GIF itself can only be calculated using web of science data. There are different databases for citations. You may have heard of Scopus, Crossref, Google Scholar is another common one. Um, And they all have different amounts of coverage of academic content. That means they can and do produce different citation counts. And and when we come on to the actual calculation, that that different citation counts matters. So a citation can only be counted if the citing paper is in the database because you need the reference and you can only get the reference if you have the reference list. so they need to know 
that citation occurred, they need to know what that citation um, was to. So that means you can't have uh, a journal impact factor or any other citation metric calculated using data from any other database. Um, they might be similar, they're not the same. It also means, and this is a bit of a shout out, if you see a company promoting something that looks like the GIF, but it isn't Taravate, it isn't using Web of Science, crucially, if they're asking you for money, there's a good chance it's a scam. And they do happen, we get them, not regularly, but they come up every now and then. Um, so, you know, you need to be on the lookout for journal impact factors, part of the JCR, from Web of Science, by Clarivate. The GIF itself is relatively straightforward um, in its concept, but quite tricky in the detail. So it's just a mean citation count, average citations within some brackets. Um, so it has a numerator, it has a denominator. The numerator is all citations to a particular journal um, in the JCR or reference year, got off a news reference year, to all content published in the two years previously. So for example, the 2022 journal impact factor that we, we the last one that we've had was all sites in 2021 to all content in 2020 and 2019. And that's always how it goes. Sites in a year to everything in the two years previously. Quite important here is it's sites to the journal, not sites that is linked to any particular paper within the journal. So it's all the sites of the journal. What I mean by that is the Web of Science um, has two types of citation. There's one of them is kind of hidden. You don't often see it, um, but they're called linked and unlinked. So linked citations is where there is sufficient information in the reference to link the reference um, to the paper that is being cited directly. So when you go and look up a paper in Web of Science, see how many sites it's got, they are linked sites. They've said you know, it's paper A to paper B. Um, there are also a pool of what are called unlinked sites, where there's either incorrect, incomplete, uh, data in the reference to make the link, or they just couldn't find the paper for some reason. Um, it's a bit of a niche case, but it does happen. Some of it is just sloppy referencing, which is still a thing. Um, some of it is people citing content that is in the journal, but isn't in the Web of Science. So uh, page cover, uh, like the journal cover, if you've got a cover image, people might cite that. Don't ask me why, they do. Um, that will come up in the Web of Science kind of reference list pool, um, but also historically early access content, which didn't used to be in the Web of Science, if people cited their their kind of early view paper or whatever the, the publisher calls it, early access paper, the site would exist, but the link wouldn't because there was no cited paper to link it to. Um, so the JCR and particularly the impact factor uses both pools of sites. They're using all of the sites that are linked and all the sites that are unlinked. So it's all the sites to the journal. Um, that's not a huge kind of disruptive problem that there's these unlinked sites, but it does mean that if you kind of count up all the sites in Web of Science, you won't get the impact factor. Um, and that Maybe. does get leveled as a criticism, but it's also just a reality of how you kind of use that data set of the Web of Science and choose what to include and not. It, it, it sounds like one of those systems that, like, that on meeting one, everyone agreed that this is this is a very simple and straightforward system. And on meeting 568, everyone's just tearing their hairs out with, with the detail and, and the, the differences. 
Exactly that. And, and as time has gone by, and you know, this is maybe something we'll come on to later, the database has evolved and the ability within that database to do the linking has evolved, has evolved. You know, the, the ability of journals to produce accurate references has evolved. Mm. And a lot of these problems have diminished, um, but they do still exist. And you know, that there is an element, they've got to do something with it, and this is what they've chosen. But it does mean that. Yeah, if you're trying to, to estimate an impact factor or you're trying to like unpick the calculation, really understand it, there does come a point in that process where you are literally just reading through reference lists. <laughs> <laughs> and I have done that. <laughs> I am not ashamed to say I've done that. Um, so, yeah. So, so the, the impact factor, certainly over the, the, the past uh, four or five years, is the calculation has changed a few times. There's been kind of... Um, several kind of adjustments um on something that on a surface level is 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 relatively straightforward you know the two preceding years and um and the reference year um why has it changed um what what's kind of sparked that off what's what's caused the need for that yeah so i think that 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 is a really good question and i think um contained within that question is 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 a lot of information right that the calculation itself has stayed pretty constant um, you know, that idea of sites journals divided by the number of papers in a, a block of years is what it has always been. What has really changed is the underlying database, what's included, what isn't, and what uh, data is being used to make certain decisions. And there's been lots and lots of changes there um, over the last 10 years or so, some of them quiet, some of them loud. Um, so we've had things like the um, creation of the Emerging Sources Citation Index, or ESCI, um, which was an attempt by Clarivate to, to bring more content into the web of science that was high quality, but wasn't high impact. It wasn't being cited much, but it was still good. That adds more papers, more papers is more references, more references is more sites. Um, the other one, a very quiet one, was the inclusion of uh, the Book Citation Index into the JCR calculation. Um, so again, more sites, um, not a lot more sites and only really relevant for certain disciplines, but it did happen. And then the biggest disruption recently has been the switch to using the um, early access year to decide what year publishing published year you're going to as assign a paper to. So historically, it would have been the, the volume year because that was what Clarivate had. Um, as publishers have generally shifted to putting paper papers online, version of record papers online first, and then putting it into an issue later, um, Clarivate have also shifted to indexing content from that initial date. Some of that is just desire. It better describes the, the research landscape. Some of it is also ability. So the ability of publishers to deliver the data to Clarivate um, in a way that they can ingest and use as, as improved. So doing that, they then decided that, that actually, while the version of record is public from an earlier date to the volume year, and they've started shifting um, the year range used in the JCR towards early access. So that means the year that they say a paper was published in for both the purposes of it being um, in the denominator as a, as a citable item and in the numerator as a paper producing sites, and also the year that it is being assigned to as the year it's being cited as have, has shifted. And that 
was always going to happen. It's just the nature of the, the sort of shifting publica publication landscape. It's the nature of having a live database that's trying to keep up with, with research. Um, and we're going through that kind of gradual inclusion of that data, which is causing a lot of upset. I mean, the other part is, is you know, there's other things in there that are sort of maybe hidden that you don't always think about as being disruptions to the calculation, but they are. So COVID is a huge one. Um, huge increase in output over COVID, both papers about COVID, uh, but also, you know, researchers finishing off papers because they couldn't really do anything else. Um, huge uptick in citations. So paper, you know, COVID papers citing COVID papers, which is this very kind of rapid turnaround of papers and citations on a really important topic across all of health sciences, life sciences, um, you know, has, has been a, a, a change very similar to um, to that which we're seeing with the change to early access, which is intentional, whereas COVID was was not intentional. Um, so a lot of those changes are less to do with why does the calculation keep changing, which is where a lot of people go, and more to do with trying to describe the changing research landscape in one average number. So the calculation itself still does the job that it was always intended to do, but the world is 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 ever changing and complicated. <laughs> the answer's the same. The question has changed. Kind of. it, it, exactly. That is exactly it. Yeah. Um, so, like from a, a from a from a journal's perspective, um, you know, a higher impact factor is an indicator that that the the articles that you're publishing are getting cited. It tends to be an indicator of quality, and that, that's lovely. It's a, it's a it's a great badge to have. Um, but does it does it does it mean that those journals can can do more things? Are there kind of knock on consequences of having a higher impact factor in terms of I don't know revenue or the kind of papers that you attract or the the kind of things that you can do as a as an academic journal? Yeah, so this is this is a, a really difficult question, and some of the answers to it can they can sort of be a little bit circular. I think that the most important thing, is, as you've already alluded to, is is the impact factor is one way of signaling the type of things that you probably publish um, and the kind of citation impact it probably sort of gets within that two-year period. Right? It's, it's an indicator and the world is complicated and there are lots of things that go into making a journal successful and impactful and high quality and there are always going to be attempts or people are always going to have the inclination that they want to look at a number and get the answer. So the impact factor does exist as a way of bucketing journals into this type of journal and that type of journal. By extension, rightly or wrongly, institutes, authors, readers, all kinds of people will also look at that score and assume that they're going to put it into a bucket. They're going to assume it's this kind of journal, that kind of journal. So while it's generally something that a lot of the academic community advises against because we want to be more nuanced, you know, people do still use that number to assess a journal and decide what's going to go, go on. So a higher impact factor can unlock, for want of a better word, access to pools of authors who maybe wouldn't consider a lower impact factor journal to be likely to be appropriate for their research. Um, you know, it does 
indicate to, to authors and institutions that content that is published in that journal is probably going to be cited more probably also being read more because all readers are also doing that same bucketing process they're looking at i've got five papers to read which ones am i going to read this one came from this journal i'm going to read it you know it, it, it provides that signal that the, the journal is probably good so the paper is probably good whatever that means um so it does kind of unlock those things um and again you know it, it becomes kind of circular you know, a higher higher impact factor journal access to better authors better institutions gets you a higher impact factor gets you more exposure etc etc might unlock you know the, the big one in our kind of space at the moment is obviously open access um where now journal revenue is more tightly uh, linked to who's publishing in your journal and where they're coming from so if you're signaling that you're prestigious because you have a high impact factor you may also find that you can charge a little bit more for your open access content because there's higher demand for you so you know it's, it's a market um so yeah it's, it's it's a really difficult one and some of it like i say is quite circular but yeah and that's I, the way of the world and i suppose if you're able as a knock-on if you're able to charge a bit more you're, you're then possibly able to apply more processes to the articles that, that that come through more kind of methods checking or whatever that might be yeah exactly i think that that is another again it's it's not hidden but it it does kind of come under that banner of sort of you know why charge this why do that like you're indicating that between you know both going through peer review there is a likelihood that the papers that come into that journal might be a little better there is a likelihood that it's going to get in front of a a better editor a better set of peer reviewers who's going to be more able to make that paper as good as it can be and communicating its content. If there's a little bit more money in that pot, then yeah, it's maybe going to go through better post acceptance processes. So, um, you know, maybe it's going to get better English language editing, that kind of thing. And again, it's going to make that paper as good as it can be in communicating its research, which means it's easier to read, it's easier to understand, it's easier to cite get you know it snowballs so I, I think that 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 kind of also answers my next question which is going to be why you know why should authors care about um about the impact factor but if i can just kind of shift that slightly to ask like, obviously the impact factor is important for the reasons you've just outlined but what what other kind of metrics or indicators of quality should authors look for when deciding which paper to uh, submit to yeah, so this this is this is a huge topic at the moment and has been for for a very long time. To be fair, um, so you know the, the the big thing in this space is the San Francisco Declaration and Research Assessment or DORA, which a lot of people have heard of. Um, Wiley's a signatory, as are many other publishers and many journals, um, and that is is yeah really that discussion of how do we limit the use of one metric that is supposed to describe one thing that is being used to describe everything. And how do we, you know, increase the nuance, increase the range of metrics available um, and do that in a purposeful way. So, I mean, you know, Dora doesn't seek to kill the impact factor and the impact factor is certainly not dead, but it does suggest that it needs more, more to do that assessment. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's it's all well and good to say to authors that these are all the things you need to look at. It's also a requirement on publishers and journals to provide more data. 
um, because this stuff can be difficult to find. It can be difficult to understand. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of work that needs to be done to educate authors um, and to educate readers on what everything means. And, you know, what Wiley is doing that, we're going through that process at the moment of releasing more more data um, and, and more teaching and, and so are other publishers. But, you know, you've got that sort of one number of the impact factor, which is giving you this kind of bucket of citation potential. Um, but you, you know, you should also look at simple things like the aims and scope, you know, a niche journal um, might not get many sites because it's, that's kind of the description of a niche journal, but it might be very prestigious because it, you know, has the right people on the board and it's read by the right people. Average usage, so readership, downloads, that matters. People reading papers is, they're still getting information from reading them, even if they don't then go and cite you, they still read it, you'd hope. Um, other um, kind of measures of success, what are often called alt metrics. So, you know, pe people can be quite dismissive of alt metrics as it's just putting stuff on Twitter, but um, those kind of scores often also include news media mentions. So, you know, are, are you getting on the, the radio and in the newspaper? That, again, that gets your information out there. Um, is your paper being used for policy documents, guidelines, stuff like that? That That is real-world impact. Um, is it being used in patents? You know, that, again, real-world impact. So kind of understanding that sort of score is really helpful. Um, you know, and if you want to go all the way back around to citations, just raw citations does matter, right? That count is still valuable. So it's that whole basket of, of different aspects of impact, both an article level and at a journal level. They all matter. And the impact factor is one of those things, um, but it's not all of them. And, and like I say, it's, it's kind of beholden on publishers to to give that data. Um, so you don't have to go hunting for it as, a, as a, an author when you want to pick a journal. Coming back to the, the specific of the impact factor, um, why is there that kind of exponential curve? I mean, there's, there's lots and lots of journals with an impact factor between, like, say, zero and two. There's quite a lot between two and five. There's some between five and ten. And then there's like three or four that are just 80, 100 and 5,000 or whatever. What, why is that such a kind of an accumulative thing? Uh there's, there's lots of reasons, and it's very journal-specific. Um, I think one, one thing to say is it's very easy to look at um, that distribution and to see the outliers and to only want to describe the outliers, right? That, that's really common. It's the same problem that you have when you're assessing the impact factor itself. You know, you, you look at the average and you see that one paper got, you know, 200 sites, and you're like, oh, why that paper? Why not all the others? Um, so it's pretty common kind of human inclination. Um, I think for the journals right at the top, you know, um, CA accounts the journal for clinicians, which is the highest impact factor journal, is a really good example because it kind of uh, shows some of the problems with the impact factor. So that is a journal which publishes a very small number of very specific papers, which will always get very highly cited, just literally because of what they are. You're publishing statistics about cancer patients you're publishing the latest big ticket article and you're only publishing a couple of them so your average is always going to be through the roof so that's the kind of subject specific content specific problem um yes you also get journals which again which sort of snowball largely because of their content so maybe they're publishing guidelines they're publishing reviews 
those papers necessarily get cited more they're, they're written to be cited um so that drags your impact factor up even if your original research is only as good as everybody else's um that gives you that bigger average it may also as an aside drag the sites to that original research up a little bit more um so that's what kind of causes that that really is just specific content in specific journals there's also elements like you know the one we always like to talk about is something like nature everything in nature gets cited because it's in nature that's just the the way of it right if you're going to cite somebody's opinion you might as well cite the editor of nature's opinion that's just the way of the world and you know, that the reality is that the vast majority of papers within a two-year period probably only do get a couple of sites because it takes time to read something, digest it, write your own paper, get it published, get it indexed, get it cited. So in that window, most papers are only going to get one, two, three sites. So by extension, most journals are only going to get an impact factor of one, two, three. And really those those five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten are quite limited in number. They're only your top percentile, and they're also very subject specific. And then your massive outliers of, of you know, two hundred or whatever is is just because that journal is doing something very, very specific, which results in a very, very specific output. Yeah. So it's one of the, it's one of the things that I often talk to people about. Say. Um like Twitter and, uh, and likes and, and, and the internet and blogs and all these kinds of things. The, the, it's, we follow kind of how many downloads or views a page or a, or, a, or a post or whatever is had. But actually, you know, you could have 200 people like something or view a page and think, huh. Um, or you could have three people who read a page and go off and form a new policy from it. And I guess the same thing happen, can happen with academic articles. You could have you could be cited by 200 other articles who are just adding you in a place where they need you in the background. Or you could be cited by three people who read your paper and are saying, based on this paper, I've changed my entire research thread to follow this because I think it's the way forward. Um, is there a way in which that, that kind of impact is, is tracked as opposed to just kind of it's been cited and that, that marks up one? Yeah, so that that sort of work is is happening. Um, there are kind of companies working on that. Some of that actually is being included in the web of science now. This kind of context contextualization. Um, it is difficult. You know, the the main reason people started to want to look into that kind of thing was positive versus negative citations. Did you cite this because the work was good? Did you cite it because you wanted to say it was bad? Nice. Um, that was like the number one, this kind of fear that there was this huge pool of negative citation going on that that was suggesting work was good when you look at the number, but actually all the citations were saying it was, um, which I don't think is the case, actually. I, I think that's, that's not really what's happening. Um, so, so sort of work to to contextualize citations and maybe bucket them into that sort of positive, world-changing, positive, I sort of read it and it was in the right area, negative, neutral, those sort of buckets um, is happening. And it is useful, but it's also very, very difficult. It's very, very difficult to extract that from um, the paper across the whole corpus of the web of science 
and get all the nuance and get it right because you don't want to accidentally say that something is a negative citation when it wasn't just because they put not after it or something like that. Um, so yes, it's possible. Yes, it is happening and is happening at an increasing rate with you know machine learning. But it is a real challenge to actually produce something that is fair and accurate and useful um, across the millions of papers in the web of science and the millions of citations that are going on every year. It's one of those horribly simple concepts that sounds like an absolute nightmare to administer. So so uh, congratulations for doing so and, and, and thank you. I mean, I think that the biggest thing is, is just to really hammer home that point that the impact factor is useful and important, but this is a complicated space. And I think there is a lot of criticism leveled at it, some of it rightly so, but often that criticism um, will ignore the fact that it's only supposed to do a specific task. And if you're only using it for that specific task of average citations, then it's really good. If you're trying to apply it to everything a journal does, then it's not very good. And you know you should be as difficult as it is trying to put it within a basket of metrics and contextualize it and and sort of you know have a few more columns to your spreadsheet. I guess is the the, the way that I would think about it. Um, I think that's really important. And it, it's it's research all over strengths, limitations, exactly. methods, exactly. Um, appropriate use of data. Yeah. Uh, wonderful. Um, uh, Tom Broomfield, thank you so much for your time. Um, thank you very much. This episode was part of a series of podcasts on this subject and is hosted under the SSA's Addictions Edited podcast umbrella. Check back, like and subscribe for future episodes on navigating academic publishing. See also the Graken Centre for Addiction at Boston Medical Centre's podcast Behind the Evidence and Addiction Audio, the podcast from the journal Addiction. This episode was recorded in collaboration between IceAge and the SSA. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of either organisation nor those of the Boston Medical Centre. Thank you.